Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Venezuela is at yet another crisis point. The government of Nicolas Maduro is facing steep opposition from the very people that swept Maduro's predecessor and mentor Hugo Chavez to power nearly 20 years ago. But after years of sharp economic decline, it appears that the, quote, revolutions hold on power is as tenuous as ever. On the line with me to, and I must say very clearly and concisely, explain what's going on in Venezuela, how we got to this point, and why there is such high probability of violence, is Francisco Toro, who is editor of the news website Caracas Chronicles. Francisco has been on the show before. Last year, he explained how Venezuela's economy so sharply and abruptly began a downwards spiral. He discusses that again, but also in the context of this protest movement. I caught up with Francisco one day before a massive protest was scheduled in Caracas against the government. Things were definitely heating up, and for reasons that Francisco explains, things could get bloody. If you have 15, 20 minutes and want to understand the situation in Venezuela, how we got to this point, have a listen. This is a very explanatory conversation, I must say. Big thank you to Francisco. Before we begin, wanted to let you know, in case you are not aware, I have published two new episodes for premium subscribers to the podcast, and you can become a premium subscriber by simply following the link in the description field of this episode and make a recurring contribution to the show via our Patreon page. And Patreon is a platform in which internet content creators like myself can leverage their listeners, their fans, that would be you, to uh, support the show, to support the work. So thank you. Big, big thank you to premium subscribers, to those of you who have already made that leap. And for those of you who are considering, as I mentioned, I have two new episodes. One takes a look at the history of the Kim family of North Korea. That is a great one. The other is a shorter 15-minute conversation about the history, the background, what started the Syrian civil war and how we got to the mess we're in today. Those are just two of the now, I believe, five premium episodes that are available to premium subscribers. And there are other goodies and bonuses as well, including a complimentary subscription to my Don's Digest Global News Clip service. To take advantage of those, become a premium member. Thank you. Okay, now here is Francisco Toro. Good conversation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
Uh, well, look, uh, the Venezuelan crisis sort of has these cycles. It goes hot and it goes cold. And at the moment, it's very much in a hot in a hot moment. Um, there are um, there's just a lot of political and social conflict underground right now, and there is a sense of a government that has decided to escalate and to. Uh, turn up the pressure on the opposition, turn up the pressure on the crisis, and that they, you know, they they have calculated that the way that they're going to go get through this is not by mollifying opponents, is not by playing nice with the international community, or by um, seeking an accommodation with parts of the opposition, but by just attacking, attacking. Yeah. It's, it's the, the Erdogan model, thing. right? The the yeah. Turkish the Turkish oh, model in a way God, being yeah. applied, right? Oh, my God, you. Uh, Wow. Um, so yeah, I, I listen. I obviously I don't follow Turkish politics very closely, but listening to uh, the stories from Turkey the, this weekend, the sense of familiarity in the discourse and just the style of political engagement, and the, it was so strange, you know, because of course Erdogan, we tend to think of him as as being on the right, and the Venezuelan Revolution being you know on the far left, but uh, but as an approach to how you do politics, uh, it's just so familiar. It's really creepy, actually. So, so let's let's talk a, a, about this situation. Try to put it in context. So, we're speaking on Tuesday, and on Wednesday there is supposed to be right this big protest. How serious is this kind of protest movement? A challenge to the rule of Maduro, the the, the president of Venezuela. Well, it. It is the thing that the government really worries about at this point. I don't think there's very much more that they worry about at this point because um, the opposition represents now a very large majority of the population. In that sense, we're not Turkish at all. Um, and Maduro has a hold over power that is based on his hold of the security services. It's more and more a straight up um, police state. But but you find yourself in a situation where if you have enough people protesting in the streets and enough places at the same time, um, the police and the National Guard, which is sort of the military, sort of like the Carabinieri or the Gendarme, the, mm -hmm. the, the military-style police, um, can't handle it. There's just not enough of them. They're not well, well enough equipped. So the question that's been hanging over the Venezuelan crisis over the last couple of weeks is at one point at what point are the normal security services um, unable to deal with the crisis and does Maduro have to call in the military like the actual army um, and that is that's a crisis point for the regime because it is plain that uh, much of the regular army and especially the air force and the navy are are not signed up for this kind of very acutely radical stage of the revolution with, with no popular support. So the question is, and, and I think the thing that really should keep Maduro up at night and, and what I see as, as a crisis point is, at what point does Maduro hand down an order to his military commanders that cannot be followed, that will not be followed, that, that will cause a breakdown in the military chain of command? That and potentially lead to a coup? I don't know if you want to call it a coup or just a situation where the army splinters and you have different bits of the army answering to different 
to different commanders. I mean, at that point, you're sort of beyond the, the looking glass. Uh, I mean, I think we're not, <laughs> we're not looking at a classic Latin American coup in that I don't think you're going to see the whole military high command turning on, on the president, although that is also imaginable. Um, I don't think you have a, a conspiratorial movement inside the armed forces that is planning towards a coup. But I do think that they have a situation where the cohesion of the armed forces, when asked to implement orders that, that are deeply unpopular within the armed forces, is very much open to question. So how that shakes out, we are, you know, it's, we're sort of in never, never. So who are the, the protesters and what are they demanding? Okay, so there is, at the core, there is an opposition movement that is long-standing that has been around for a long time and has um, been decrying Chavismo's authoritarian drift since the days of Chavez. And uh, they are demanding what they've always been demanding, which is a return to a more sort of classic liberal democratic tradition and and less authoritarian government. Um, that's a movement that the government knows how to handle and has been handling for 18 years and is not that acute a challenge to the regime. The bigger problem is that because there is this terrible economic crisis and you know three out of every four Venezuelans lost body weight last year because they couldn't find enough food. And I'm not talking a little body weight. I'm talking on average um, eight and a half kilos, you know, 20 pounds. Um, you have this, this situation where there, it's very easy to get a riot going. It's very easy to get looting going because people can't find enough food. And so the real problem is that you have this conjunction between more middle class or sort of depauperized middle class people, people who maybe went to university but don't have enough to eat right now, Mm -hmm. On the one hand, and then a mass movement of people who maybe voted for Chavez at some point in their lives, who were maybe sympathetic for the revolution, but are now deeply poor in a way they never imagined possible, and are up up to protesting because this doesn't look this doesn't look to them like a regime that has any form of future. And and, and but, the the sort of working poor was previously, as you said, the the movement, the revolution's right. uh, base of support, but they seem to be splintering. Well, what you've seen in the last couple of weeks, last week, last last Tuesday in particular, there was an episode where you started to see little riots and looting episodes um, all over the country and not in middle class areas at all. In the west side of Caracas and sort of the heartlands of Chavismo and small provincial cities and hard up areas that used to be the place where the governing party could rely on, you know, 60, 65, 70 percent of the vote. Um, when you have the popular movements that Chavismo spent so much of the last two decades building up, um, when you see those movements just sort of sitting by and not reacting and not doing anything as, as protests and riots and looting takes over in their communities, you start to see that also the mechanisms at the grassroots that Chavismo used to have to guarantee Satan power are, are fraying and are breaking down. And, and it's easy to understand why, because those guys aren't getting paid either. And I, I think at the root of this, when you get, you have to understand the scale of the financial mess that the revolution has created. There should, there is no money. We didn't save any money from the from the high oil years. Um, they built up debts that they're now having to really, really squeeze uh, domestic spending and imports in order to service. And so the regime it just doesn't have any money. And so all of its support pillars that relied on on a level of public spending are frank 
So last time we spoke, you discussed and you kind of walked me through how economically we got to the point where, you know, there's not enough toilet paper in the country. There's no medicine. And I, I think you and it was a Moises Naim uh, had, had mm -hmm. a piece together in, what was it, in foreign affairs or foreign policy or the Atlantic? It was in, in the Atlantic. The Atlantic. I knew if I picked those three, one would hit. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, you basically argued and, and, and made the point that the country is undergoing certain, uh, shifts you see in terms of development indicators that are more closely associated with like failed states or fa and, and, and conflict states. Um, and it's, it's, it's remarkable, but I'd love to maybe uh, just kind of turn back a, a little bit and have you walk me through how we got to this point. Um, both politically and economically. So, so Chavez comes to power, what, 1999, riding sort of a, mm -hmm. a socialist wave. And so how did we get from, from that sort of high point to, to where we are now? A lot of this is just explained by the oil market. I mean, not all of it, but, but a lot of it. Um, you had the biggest and sort of most frenzied um, export boom in Venezuela's history. You had a 10-year oil boom where, depending on how you do the math specifically, you might have had a trillion dollars pour into this, this small middle-income country, which you would think is enough. Um, but rather than saving any of it, rather than creating a sovereign wealth fund or at least you know building up um, international reserves the way, the, the way allied countries did it, the way Bolivia did, the way Ecuador did, the way... Other countries in Latin America that are far left-wing managed to do well. Chavismo spent all of it and then built up debt on top on top of that. Like what so, did he spend it on? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of corruption. There are a lot of sort of boondoggle projects. There's a famous train between Tinaco and Anaco, which if you go on Google Maps, you will realize are two like small towns in the Venezuelan plains in the south of Venezuela where nobody really lives and where there are no big cities in the middle. Chavez spent several hundred million dollars hiring a Chinese company to build a high-speed train between Tinaco and Anaco, mostly, I think, because the two towns rhyme, and so it's kind of sounded good. There's a lot of that kind of boondoggle spending. You can and, and some journalists have, have done this. You can go around the country and do, do sort of the grand tour of grandiose projects that Chavez and the revolution spent billions on that, that just never got finished. So there was a lot of that. And then there was also a lot of, um, of social transfer payments. There was a lot of, there were a lot of social programs that just took oil money and borrowed money and put it directly into um, poor people's pockets. So, so the poor benefited. I mean, I mean, at least to, to a certain degree, lived up to some of the promises of the revolution. Yeah, I would, I would say there was probably a third, a third, a third. There was you know, probably a third was stolen, a third was wasted, and a third was transferred into poor people's pockets. Mm -hmm. um, but you end up in a situation where once there's an oil bust in 2014, you are completely unable to respond to it because... A, you've already maxed out your credit cards at a time when when oil prices were high, so you don't have access to international credit markets anymore. You have all this debt that you have to service, and also because your economic management has been terrible during the high, high oil, oil years, you've expropriated all these companies that used to produce stuff. Um, now you don't really have a private sector that can pick up some of the slack and, and, and start producing once, once your currency devalues after, after oil prices go down. So, so you're really stuck in this situation where there's, there's no money coming in. And on the basis of that, you might have thought, well, 
probably that is the time to reform. That's the time to, to devalue the currency more. That is the time to have some kind of pragmatic approach to economic policy management. But there's been nothing. So, since Chavez died in 2013, there has been no attempt to reform the economy or to adapt to a new external situation at all. I said what you've seen is that when these guys need to make these, these debt payments to international creditors. They have no money coming in, so they just squeeze imports and squeeze imports of food, imports of medicine, imports also of supplies and capital goods. So you need to keep the rest of the economy going. And it's created an economic crisis that you virtually never see outside of a, of a wartime situation. Yeah, where a country goes from middle income to low income like that. Um, so concurrent to the, um, sort of the, the, the boom and, and the, um, just mass spending that you described, was there a plot process of political consolidation, right? So, so did, did Chavez and then perhaps later Maduro, um, you know, use the, the, the wealth cr that, that the oil boom, uh, created to sort of consolidate political power? Of course, and as as when oil prices are high and you have plenty of money to spend, it's easy enough to keep to remain highly popular, especially if you're Chavez and you're charismatic and people sort of like you to begin with. And so you win elections, and each time you win an election, you you claw away more democratic freedoms and more institutional spaces for uh, for opposition or for just even for basic oversight. And um, so that was a process that was very gradual that took place over 15 years with Chavez in power sort of very slowly um, and then has been intensifying a lot since Chavez died because A, you don't have any money, B, you don't have the charisma, mm -hmm. and, and C, um, you know, once Chavez dies, there is a realignment of the factions around the, the Venezuelan presidency where the more sort of left-wing ideological um, fellow travelers are, are sort of shed because they don't have basis of power. And you and Maduro ends up surrounded by faction heads who are really uh, big-time drug traffickers, many of them, Tarek El Aysami, the new vice president, or people who are trafficking food, who are, who are making big profits off of the fact that there's not enough food, like a lot of the people at the top of the military chain right now. So you get this this narco-statization of, of the key factions around him. And these are a lot of people, you know, the vice president has been named uh, a drug kingpin by the, US, uh, by the U.S. Treasury Department after a four-year investigation. They have a lot of documents. They have a mm -hmm. lot of evidence that these guys are trafficking big amounts of, of cocaine. Apparently, a trillion dollars in, in oil sales wasn't enough. Um, it's kind of shocking. So, so you, you end up with this kind of mafia state around Maduro, and these guys, they don't have a proper option to staying in power that doesn't involve uh, a supermax prison in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And so they, they hang on to power with a ferocity that, well, that we've been seeing this, this week. So, so that, so, okay. So, so that kind of brings me to, to sort of where we are today. So, so Maduro becomes president after Chavez comes to cancer, right? Right. Uh, he, you know, as you said, you know, has, you know, the, the, doesn't quite have the charisma of, of a Chavez, but is, is, you know, has these kinds of, uh, ne'er-do-wells surrounding him and, and has, inherits this awful, 
uh, economic policies. Um, so how is Maduro then responding to this current challenge on his uh, hold on power that we're seeing from this protest movement? And what uh, I guess you, you kicked off by saying that the um, Venezuelan crisis kind of ebbs and flows. Why are we at a, a high point right now? It's really interesting. The the classic move um, for Chavismo, when they overreached, they made a, a political decision that was too provocative or that seemed too authoritarian, that would tend to bring opposition people out into the streets and you'd have protests and tear gas and a mess in the streets in Caracas and shut down metro stations. And it was a nuisance really for, for everybody who was not so political because sort of the cities, the big cities stopped working. And then the classic move was to try to defuse that movement by trying to divide the opposition. So you'd offer some concessions, like an offer to sit down and have a dialogue with like the Vatican as a mediator, maybe, but concessions that were calibrated so that they would be attractive to the more moderate bit of the opposition, but the, but wouldn't satisfy the more radical bit of the opposition. Mm -hmm. And so that would divide the opposition into, into squabbling factions. And then the pro protest movement would fizzle because if you don't have the opposition united around a call to protest, the protest can't really be sustained. And that's something that Chavismo, Chavez, and then Maduro did again and again. We saw it in 2014 very clearly. We saw it just last October very clearly with this um, by bringing in the, the Vatican mediator, I think, the last time we spoke. Um, what we've seen this time that is strange and new is that Maduro doesn't seem to be doing that this time. Maduro seems to be going sort of full speed ahead. So um, the key moderate party in the opposition movement, Primero Justicia, really sort of in the Christian democratic tradition in Latin America. So very moderate, um, sort of middle of the road, centrist democratic politicians with a link to the Catholic Church, who you can always count on to sit down for a negotiation and who you would think is a natural place. If you're looking to the, divide the opposition, you go to Primero Justicia, you offer them some concessions and then they, they reign in the protest. They haven't done that this time. They've mm -hmm. attacked Primero Justicia again and again and again, called them terrorists again and again and again. State propaganda is on a tear against Primero Justicia right now. They've imprisoned some of their activists, tortured them to extract confessions from them and then place the videos of the confessions uh, of the extracted confessions, uh, alleging that Primero Justicia is some kind of terrorist far-right cabal, they've, they've put them on, on state-run TV again and again, and they've started doing things like publishing on Twitter the photos and like home addresses of Primero Justicia leaders and encouraging gangs of, of pro-government paramilitaries to go and like you know, defend the revolution at these places. So it's hard for intimidation tactics against doxing, you. doxing political leaders, but coming from uh, coming from the president. Wow, from the state. So, um, and of course, they disqualified the key Primero Justicia leader, Enrique Capriles, has been disqualified from holding office for, for fifteen years. So, what I was expecting the government would do was to do what they always did, which is try to peel off the moderates to, to tamp down on protests. And instead, they're going closely ahead for the protest tomorrow. Instead, they've been pushing Primero Justicia into adopting a, a more radical stance with all this. And then for the protest tomorrow, for example, in Caracas, the, the opposition, the entire opposition called for people to gather at 26 rallying spots around the city, and they listed them. If you go on Twitter, you can find these maps. 
And then the government's response has been to call on their supporters to show up and take over those same 26 spots around the city early in the morning. But so you with can imagine, guns, probably, right? Right. Well, they don't have to say that, but people understand. So you can imagine the potential for volatility and conflict that you know, you're announcing that you're going to have 26 riots in Caracas tomorrow. And I, I guess how do you I, – I mean by the time that people are listening to this, that whatever happens in Caracas will have happened. So I, I don't want to like have you make any predictions. Right. Um, but it, it, it just sounds like the, the situation that you are describing is one in which um, could very quickly and, and um, dangerously lead to just violence throughout the country, not only – uh, between like protesters and pro Maduro people, but as you said earlier, factions like within the army kind mm -hmm. of going after each other or or following different chains of commands, and it, it just kind of seems like a situation that is ripe for like a, a real major crisis, not not just like yeah. a, a a coup as you said earlier, in which after a period of of volatility things calm down, but there doesn't seem to be or maybe there is, I, I just don't know it, like an institution within the government that could calm this down. I mean, is the military a respected enough institution that theoretically they could, um, they could, they could dampen the situation and, and restore some amount of order if things really start to spiral out of control? Well, we're going to find out. I mean, you, you right. preface that question saying that you weren't going to ask me to make any predictions. <laughs> we ended up here. Yeah. Um, it's, um, I'll say this, yesterday on Monday, if you look at the, the images from Caracas, uh, Maduro took to the streets surrounded by the Bolivarian militia. The Bolivarian militia is this heavily politicized sort of Praetorian guard of civilians, really, who have a little bit of training and guns, and there are a lot of them, and they're all over the country, and and Maduro wanted to show this 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 image of him surrounded by men in, at arms and men and women at arms, as as what his response to the crisis is. This is a message to the opposition. It's also a message to the armed forces. It's also saying to the armed forces, if you guys get any silly ideas, it's not just me you have to deal with. You have to deal with all of these civilians that we've given some training to and some weapons that don't have, you know, Sukhoi jet planes and and tanks, but there are a lot of them, and you're going to have to deal with them. So there are many elements in Venezuela right now that could easily spiral into a violent confrontation. I don't know anybody right now in Caracas who is not seriously concerned about the potential for that. By the same token, because the situation is so, is so extremely volatile right now, there is an amazing thirst for certainty and for stability. And, and I think what Maduro doesn't seem to realize is that so many of the moves that he's made to try to forestall a coup or a military intervention in politics, in fact, are raising the demand, the societal demand for, for certainty because they, they create uncertainty. And when you have a lot of uncertainty in the mix and you have a lot of potential for violence, what you create is, is a population that is willing to side with anyone who will say, I am the guarantor of stability. So is Padrino Lopez a defense minister, somebody who can take that role, or is some of their army commanders somebody who can who can take on that mantle? I maybe, maybe, depending on how they play their cards. What is clear is that 
more and more Maduro is seen as someone whose whose style of leadership is so volatile and so confrontational that um, that that he cannot play the role of guarantor of stability. And I think to the extent that the, you create a consensus around that, um, the shelf life and the you know the staying power of a regime that is widely perceived as as destabilizing to society can't be long. Look, I've been saying that for 18 years, so you kind of take that part with a grain of salt. But we're now reaching, we're now reaching sort of an extreme situation. Well, uh, Francisco, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for your analysis. This was exceedingly helpful. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Francisco. Thank you for becoming a premium subscriber. If this conversation inspires you to support the show in a more deeper and meaningful way, thank you. All right. See you next time. Bye.